Chapter 4 of Mildred and Elsie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Mildred and Elsie by Martha Finley. Chapter 4. Alas, my lord, if talking would prevail, I could suggest much better arrangements than those regards you throw away on me, your valour, honour, wisdom praised by all, but bid physicians talk our veins to temper, and with an argument new set a pulse, then think, my lord, of reasoning into love. Young. By the time they reached Lansdale, Mildred was weary enough to be very glad of a few days' rest, rest whose delights were doubled and trebled by being taken into the society of her dear old aunt. The travellers were received with the warmest of welcomes. Mildred embraced over and over again, and Mr. Lord repeatedly and heartily thanked for bringing her. "'Dear child, how you are improved!' Aunt Wealthy said the first moment they found themselves alone together. "'Have I grown, Auntie?' Mildred asked with an arch smile, laying two shapely soft white hands on the old lady's shoulders and gazing lovingly into her eyes as they stood facing each other on the hearthrug in front of the open fireplace in Miss Stanhope's cosy sitting-room, for it was a cool rainy evening and the warmth of the small wood fire blazing and crackling there was by no means unpleasant. "'Not in height, Milly,' Miss Stanhope answered, giving the young girl a critical survey, nor stouter either, but your form has developed, your carriage is more assured and graceful, your dress has a certain style it lacked before, and, but I must not make you vain, she added, breaking off with her low musical laugh, come, tell me all about your Uncle Dinsmore and his family. And little Elsie, the sweet darling, sighed Mildred, Aunt Wealthy, she is a perfect little fairy, the sweetest, most beautiful creature you ever laid eyes on. Ah, I only wish I could lay eyes on her, the old lady rejoined. Does she resemble her father in looks? Not in the least. She is said to be the image of her mother, and from that Mildred went on to dwell with minuteness and enthusiasm on all the charms of the little one, arousing in her companion a very strong desire to see and know Elsie for herself. That subject pretty well exhausted, Mildred could talk of something else and found a great deal to tell about the other Dinsmores, her own experiences in the South and the incidents of her late journey. They had seated themselves on a sofa. Mr. Lord, suffering from an attack of sick headache, had retired to his own apartment directly after tea, leaving them to the full enjoyment of each other. "'And have you come back heart-whole, Milly, my dear?' asked the old lady, smiling into the eyes of her young relative and softly stroking the hand she held. The question brought a vivid blush to the fair young face. "'Excuse me, dear child, I do not wish to pry into your secrets,' Aunt Wealthy hastened to say. "'No, Auntie dear, I do not consider it prying,' or wish to keep my affairs from your knowledge, you and mother are the two I wish to confide in and consult. And with many blushes, sighs, and now and then a few quiet tears, 
Mildred poured out the whole story of Charlie Landreth's and her own love for each other and the barrier between them. Aunt Wealthy listened with deep interest and heartfelt sympathy. Don't despair, dear child, she said, caressing the narrator in tender, motherly fashion. And don't give him up. We will join our prayers in his behalf, and the Lord will, in his own good time, fulfil to us his gracious promise to those who agree together to ask a boon of him. Yes, auntie, I do believe he will, Mildred responded, smiling through her tears. If we pray in faith, for in asking for the conversion of a soul, we shall certainly be asking that which is agreeable to his will, and yet, oh, auntie, it may be long years before our prayers receive the answer, and I, I may never see him again. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, repeated Miss Stanhope in low, soft tones. Milly, dear, try to leave the future in the hands of him who has said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Both mused in silence for a little. Then Miss Stanhope said, turning with a slight smile toward her young relative, Milly child, you are very attractive to the other sex. Mildred coloured and looked down. Aunt Wealthy, she said, I hope you do not think me a coquette. No, child, no, I'm quite sure you are too kind-hearted to enjoy giving pain to any living creature. That is true, auntie, and for that reason I wish none would care for me in that way, but the one I can care for in return. Yes, and therefore I wish, Miss Stanhope paused, then in answer to Mildred's inquiring look, concluded her sentence, that some other escort had been found for you. Mildred's cheek crimsoned. Aunt Wealthy, she exclaimed, do you, do you really think he cares for me in that way? Oh, I hope not. Aunt Dinsmore said something of the sort, but I hoped she was mistaken. Miss Stanhope's only answer was a meaning smile and a slight shake of the head. Then, Aunt Wealthy, you must help me to avoid being left alone with him cried Mildred, in a tone of apprehension and annoyance. And I do hope there will always be other passengers in the boats and stages, so that he will have no chance to say a word. All I can do, child, cling as close to me as you will, but you may rest assured he is bound to speak and have it out with you, sooner or later. He shall not if I can prevent him. How can he be so extremely silly? But indeed, Aunt Wealthy... I think you must be mistaken. He surely has too much sense to fancy me. You won't be rude, Milly. You won't forget the respect due to him as your minister. Not if I can help it. Aunt Wealthy must help me by not leaving us alone together for a single moment. But, my dear, how are my household affairs to be attended to? When we are all together and you want to leave the room, just clear your throat and give me a look, and I'll go first. Then you can readily excuse yourself on the plea of domestic matters calling for your attention, and we may amuse ourselves with a newspaper or a book until we rejoin him. Miss Stanhope laughingly agreed to the proposed programme, and they carried it out during the whole visit. Mr. Lord was very desirous to see Mildred alone, but found every effort to that end frustrated. 
Miss Stanhope seemed always in the way, and Mildred would accept no invitation to walk or drive unless her aunt was included in it. He had formerly considered the aunt quite a charming old lady, but changed his opinion somewhat at this particular time, though undoubtedly a most excellent woman, and without a superior as a hostess, it was a decided bore to have to listen to and answer her talk when he was longing for a private chat with Mildred. He bore the trial with what patience he might, comforting himself with the hope of a favourable opportunity for his wooing somewhere on the journey from Lansdale to Pleasant Plains. Mildred was dreading the same thing, and fully resolved to prevent it, if possible. Therefore, when the stage drew up for them at Miss Stanhope's gate, it was with very different feelings they perceived that it already contained several passengers. "'Safe for the present, Auntie,' whispered the young girl as they folded each other in a last lingering embrace. "'You can't expect to be so fortunate always.' returned the old lady, in the same low key and with a humorous look. Be sure to let me have the whole story in your next letter. It was staging all the way now. Sometimes they travelled day and night, sometimes stopped for a few hours' rest and sleep at a wayside inn. It was on Monday morning they left Lansdale, and the journey was not completed until Saturday noon. Through all the earlier part of the route they had plenty of company, the stage being always pretty well filled, if not crowded. Most of their fellow travellers proved intelligent and agreeable, some, both ladies and gentlemen, remarkably so, and the tedium of the way was beguiled by talk, now grave, now gay, and embracing a wide range of topics. On one occasion a discussion arose on the propriety and lawfulness of intermarriage between Christians and worldlings. Some took the ground that it was a mere matter of choice, others that it was both dangerous and sinful for a follower of Christ to marry any other than a fellow disciple or one who was esteemed such. Of these latter, Mr. Lord was one of the strongest and most decided in the expressions of his sentiments and convictions, quoting a number of passages of Scripture to sustain his views. During the whole of the conversation, Mildred was a silent but deeply interested listener, her heart sinking more and more in each word uttered by Mr. Lord, for as her pastor and spiritual instructor, his expressed convictions of truth carried great weight with her, and seemed to widen the gulf between herself and him who was the choice of her heart. Her only comfort was the hope that some day the barrier might be removed, but, ah, many long years might intervene, and who should say that in the meantime Charlie would not grow disheartened and weary of waiting, or, incredulous of the love that could keep him waiting, allow some other to usurp her place in his affections. These were depressing thoughts, and throughout the remainder of the journey they filled Mildred's mind almost constantly. It was only by determined effort that she could shake them off and talk of other things. In the course of that day and the next, which was Friday, the other passengers dropped off one by one, until, to her dismay, she found herself alone with Mr. Lord for the first time since they had left Lansdale. 
The last to leave them was an elderly lady who had been occupying the back seat along with Mildred since the stage had started that morning. When it drew up before her door, Mr. Lord alighted and politely handed her out. On getting in again, instead of resuming his former seat, he took the one she had just vacated. Mildred's heart gave a throb, and the colour rushed over her face, for she foresaw what would follow. Still, she would foil him if possible, and perhaps their numbers might be presently again augmented as they rolled onward. With that last thought in his mind also, the gentleman was disposed to seize his opportunity instantly. He cleared his throat, turned to his companions and opened his lips, but with her back toward him, she was gazing eagerly from the window. "'Look, look at those maples!' she cried. "'Was there ever more gorgeous colouring? "'How perfectly lovely the woods are! "'And the weather is delightful today. "'October is the pleasantest month of the year for travelling, I think.' "'Any month and any weather would be pleasant to me "'with you for my companion,' he said. "'And nothing, my dearest girl, could make me so supremely happy.' as to secure you as such for the whole journey of life. She feigned not to have heard or fully understood. I, for one, have travelled quite far enough, she responded, still keeping her face toward the window. I am tired of it, and of being so long away from the dear home circle. Oh, I am so glad that I shall be with them tomorrow, if all goes well. God grant it, dear Mildred, I shall rejoice in your happiness and theirs, but... Oh, see, she interrupted, pointing to a group of trees near the roadside. What brilliant reds and yellows, and there, what a beautiful contrast those evergreens make. Yes, God's works are wonderful, and his ways past finding out, he answered devoutly, then kept silence, while for some minutes Mildred rattled on, hardly knowing or caring what she was saying, so she might but avoid the necessity of listening to and answering the proposal he was evidently so desirous to make. But his silence disconcerted her. He did not seem to hear her remarks, and at length she found herself too much embarrassed to continue them. For five minutes neither spoke. Then he made her a formal offer of his heart and hand, which she gently but decidedly declined, saying she felt totally unfit for the position he would place her in. He said that in that he could not agree with her. He had never met anyone who seemed him so eminently fitted for the duties and responsibilities he had asked her to assume, and he loved her as he had never had loved and never could love another. Would she not consider? Would she not be persuaded? She told him she highly esteemed him as a man and a minister, that she felt greatly honoured by his preference, but could not love him in the way he wished. Ah, he said, what a sad blunderer I am. I see I have spoken too soon. Yet give me a little hope, dear girl, and I will wait patiently and do my best to win the place in your heart I so ardently covet. She could not bring herself to acknowledge that that place was already filled, and he would not resign the hope of finally winning her. During the rest of that day and the morning of the next, he treated her to frequent lengthened discourses 
on the duty of everyone to live the most useful life possible on the rare opportunities of so doing afforded by the position of minister's wife and on the permanence and sure increase of connubial love when founded upon mutual respect and esteem till at length a vague fear crept over her that he might finally succeed in proving to her that it was her duty to resign the hope that at some future day the barrier to her union with the man of her choice would be swept away, and to marry him on account of the sphere of usefulness such a match would open to her. She heard him for the most part in silence, now and then varied by a slight nod of acquiescence in the sentiments he expressed, yet even from these scant tokens of favour he ventured to take courage, and to hope that her rejection of his suit would not prove final. It was a great relief to her that they were not alone for the last ten miles that lay between them and pleasant plains. End of chapter 4